Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 110, Embodied Zen. This week, Gary Shishin Wick Roshi joins us to continue discussing the various ways that Zen can be embodied in our experience. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. I started to say earlier that when a student passes their first koan, from my perspective, that's when practice begins. Okay? And it's not just having insight that it's important. How do you integrate that insight into your life? And there definitely are students who are good at doing koans and go through all of the koans, but then they haven't learned how to integrate it into their life. You know, and that's where the teacher has to use other upayas. And unless a student has learned how to integrate it into their life, it would be hard to give Dharma transmission to them or call them a teacher or a Zen master. And it's much more difficult to learn how to integrate it into your life because we have all kinds of karmic traces that we have to deal with. We have all kinds of unconscious behavior patterns. We have all kinds of hidden beliefs that control the way that we relate to people and the way we relate to the environment, the way we relate to the world, the way we relate to institutions that we're not aware of. You know, So this practice has to be about bringing all of that into the conscious mind, and then there have to be effective ways of, of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Mm. I get the impression when someone goes in to actually interview with you or, or another teacher that this isn't like a discussion you'd have with like a professor. <laughs> Let's talk about, like you're saying, the difference between live and dead words. Right. So I wonder if you could give us a, a glimpse into the world of, of interviewing with a Zen teacher and what that's like if you're, if you're working on a koan or, or just in any other way. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to do that without a particular issue, you know, or, or something that we're dealing with specifically. It's hard to talk about it yeah. in general. But, you know, we say that when a student comes in to leave all pretenses at the door, you know, that to just totally uncloak themselves and be open and honest and straightforward. And I heard Dido Laurie say that it's like playing ping pong in a way the student has to serve the ball and then the, the teacher can hit it back, you know. But, you know, sometimes teachers will take the first uh, move, particularly if a student is is reticent, you know, to help open them up. You know, and for beginning students, you know, a lot of it is instruction, you know, of how to do things. Now, in the in that book uh, that we keep mentioning, The Three Pillars of Zen, one of Yasutani Roshi's instructions is not to bring personal issues into the interview room, but only to bring things relating to practice. Mm-hmm. When I first started teaching, that's all that students brought in were their personal issues. So that's why we developed a great heart way in order to deal with these things. Now, sometimes interviews will just last for a few seconds, you know, but sometimes we'll have to just keep pushing the student, poking and prodding, you know, to get them to go deeper. But there has to be a certain level of trust. I mean, the student has to be willing 
to allow the teacher to prod and poke. And if the student is willing to do that, there's only so much that you can do. And I require that uh, you know students give me that permission. And if they don't, then we'll just have a nice time. Gotcha. And I found it really interesting what you're saying about the difference between bringing up personal issues versus bringing up things directly related to the practice. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about that and why. what was the significance of Yasutani Roshi mentioning that? Because I've heard that distinction also in, from other teachers. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with most of the people who train traditionally were monks in monastic settings. And they didn't have a lot of the issues of livelihood. They didn't have issues of relationships. And I think that it was felt it was a waste of time, you know, to do that. And I also heard that if a student had too many emotional issues, that they would just unceremoniously ask them to leave. So they wanted people who had a, a strong sense of, of themselves so that they could just go into the practice without a lot of digression or diversion. But as I mentioned, that's not the nature of the practice in this country. So we have to develop techniques or upayas to deal with. The live words versus dead words is really significant to me. And it seems like I've always felt my perception of koan practice lends itself to pushing a practitioner into live words. It gives less of an option to go to the the conceptual hijacking of our experience. Or if you do, it would be more obvious. It seems like that to me. I wonder if that's the case, if it just seems like you're getting to more of a real discussion quicker in that Mm -hmm. kind of practice. Well, it it cuts through a lot of BS, that's for sure. And one of the things that I tell my students is that this is a practice about continually stepping into the unknown. And when we become too familiar with things, then they, they start becoming by rote or, conce- or conceptual. And part of the reasons that, that we want to stay in our comfort zone is that we feel we have a sense of control over our environment, although that's really a, a false notion. So to be comfortable continually stepping into the unknown And when you do that, then whatever expression comes forward is spontaneous. You know, it's not something that you've cogitated and ruminated and about and and planned and prepared. And you might be wondering if there's a standard pat answer to koans Mm -hmm. as well. And the way I, I deal with it, it doesn't have just to do that it has to do with the whole presentation. You know, like what we talked earlier about Solon Roshi and, and the last words of Christ. It's how you present it as well as what you present. So you get marks for presentation as well. <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. Yeah. Well, you know, in a way it's true. I mean, Zuma Roshi told me that, that, he used to tell me several times, he says, you know, we're, we're not actors here, you know, but I want you to really put yourself mm. into it. And sometimes, you know, you have to, put yourself into different kinds of situations and different roles, so to speak. Interesting. I had one last question about koan training, and that has to do with, I've heard certain teachers contemporizing. I'm wondering how that works, and if you do that kind of thing, or what what example of that might be. Well, an example I often use, there's a a Japanese teacher in Los Angeles named Joshua Sasaki, and uh, he's actually... 101 years old now has been in this country for a long time. And 
he would ask his students, how do you realize your true nature while driving a car on the Los Angeles freeway? That was a koan that he would assign to them. But I also tell my students that the best koans are the ones that come directly out of their lives. You know, So if the practice doesn't really help them deal with some of these situations that they get into in their life about how to work through it, you know, then it's kind of a dead practice. So in a sense, those are contemporary koans mm. because people might, you know, bring in a situation they have at work or in their family or balancing their kids and their practice, time or other things like that. And so that becomes a koan. We use that as practice. And since we've already touched on this several times, I want to hear more about the, this great heart way and, and how you work with students who do just naturally have a different way of approaching things. They're not monks. Yeah. They have their unique Western psychological issues. They bring those to the table sometimes, whether they want to or not, I'm sure. And I'm wondering, yeah, what the Great Heart Way is and, and how does that fit in also with the traditional forms? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the Great Heart Way was developed by me and my teaching partner, uh, Ilya Shinko Perez. And we've developed it over a number of years. And like I mentioned earlier, when I first started teaching, that was a lot emotional issues, psychological issues were brought into the private interview room by a lot of students. And uh, one of the things I learned pretty early on is that most students live in their heads. They don't live in their bodies. And I, a phrase that I don't know if he coined it, but Reggie Ray talks about floating heads, you know, that a lot of practitioners, meditation practitioners in the Tibetan tradition are floating heads, mm. you know, and, and also in Zen, a lot of them are floating heads. They're not, they're not connected. So if a student comes into me and says that they're really angry, I say, well, ask them, what does it feel like? The first thing they might say is, my girlfriend left me. And, and I'll say, well, that's a storyline. What does it feel like? And they'll say, and she took our dog in my truck and my cigarettes you know, and, and I'll keep saying, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? I mean, that's story. That's your storyline. And eventually they'll begin, you know, to feel the tightness, you know, in their throat or in their heart or something like that. And that's where we want them to pay their attention, not on all of the rationalizations and judgments and projections that they have about it. You know, just get into the body. This, and Zazen, you know, Zen meditation is body-centered meditation. Most people don't get that, or it takes them a long time to get it. So the important mantra that, that we teach in the Great Heart Way is non-judgmental awareness. Don't judge it. No matter, You don't have to, to justify how you feel. How you feel does not make you a worthy or an unworthy person. It doesn't make you good or bad. It doesn't make you right or wrong. It's just what you're feeling. Okay? But most people are not in touch with the feelings. And so that's the first step, is learn how to feel. What does anger feel like? You know, what does sadness feel like? What does joy feel like? Where is it in your body? Is it localized? Is it spread over your whole body? Just really just sit with it. That's the focus of their meditation, is what's going on inside of the body. And then to, if they once they start getting in touch with this, they begin to see that there isn't any element of good or bad in, in the feeling of anger. The good or bad is how you act it out, 
but the feeling itself is just energy that's either blocked in your body or energy that's flowing rampantly or, you know, or it could be, you know, a balanced flow of energy as well. So once they get in touch with that, and if they're, are situations in their life where they once they are in touch with that feeling, where they see that feeling constantly recurring, then we begin to work with that feeling. And they just sit with that feeling and, and try to just reflect on, on times when it occurred in their life. We don't ask them to do a scan of their life, you know, the, uh, but, you know, that's the realm of psychoanalysis. But this, as we explain in our book, The Great Heart Way, what often happens is an image pops up very strong in people's minds. And they, from that image, they begin to see how they formed this belief system that developed this habit pattern that they keep doing certain things when it's triggered in their life. And I can give an example from my own experience in doing it, which I talk about in the book itself. By most standards, I'm a fairly successful person. I did very well in school. I um, got straight A's in high school. I was a Phi Beta Cap in college. I got a PhD in physics from the uh, University of California in Berkeley, which was, at that time was considered the best physics school in the country. And uh, I was an athlete. I lettered in a number of sports. I was a state swimming champion in, in high school. And then I went on and had a number of careers but there was always this thought in my mind that I'm not good enough. And I, even after I became a Dharma successor of Maizumi Roshi, I still had that thought, I'm not good enough. And obviously that was driving me to be as successful as I was because I had to prove that I was good enough. And when I was sitting with the, with the feeling, I had several images come up, but the one that I finally settled on was when I was about six or seven years old, I was in religious school, and they were talking about the stories in the Bible. And one of the stories was about Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham was uh, ordered by God to sacrifice his son Isaac to show his devotion and his dedication you know, to God and to the, to the religion. And he took his son and was going to sacrifice him, and I reread the Bible re recently. He deceived his wife. He deceived his retainers. And, and uh, he took his son and was ready, bound him up and was ready to kill him, you know, when the God intervened. And had, there was a ram that was caught nearby in the bush that he sh should sacrifice and said because he had shown his, his true faith. Well, when I heard that at that age, I, I immediately said to myself, they're going to kill Isaac. And he was a good loyal son, what are they going to do with somebody like me? You know, so I said, you know, I had better really be in perfect behavior to do always do well, otherwise I'm going to die. And I had that belief, it was at an unconscious, almost cellular level. And through the, this practice and through meditation, I was able to uncover it, and then there's certain techniques we give on how to heal it and to dissolve it in the book. Interesting. And how do you find when people are able to do that kind of work? Does it change then their ability to do the other kinds of work? Or does it just have a, a healthy impact on their psyche and then their ability to be you know, just good people in general? Well, I think it's both. Uh -huh. yeah. I find that the people are, aren't as controlled by their unconscious mind. And 
And, and we give a quote from Jung in the book where he says that meditation seems to be the royal road to the unconscious. And that's what it is. It's unconscious behavior patterns and beliefs, and usually they're established when we're quite young and we continue them forward. Now, does that help people to go deeper into their regular practice? In my experience is yes, it does. I do want to ask one last question that we've touched on a little bit. You said it was a whole whole nother story, but I am wondering how you've integrated in your own experience, in your own understanding, this difference that is often seen between these the Soto school and the Rinzai school. And it's really, it's not just the schools, it's also, I think, something that you see in all the different Buddhist traditions and, and maybe even goes beyond the Buddhist traditions in general. But I mean, in short, it's this difference between trying to get somewhere, uh, you know, get to awakening. This in, in the Rinzai tradition, my understanding is oftentimes there's a the real emphasis on having Kensho or Satori. And then this other perspective, which is like, it's already here. You know, we really just have to kind of wake up to it or realize it. You know, there's not really anywhere to go in a certain way. And I'm wondering, yeah, how you've found a way to integrate those things or bring them together. Because it seems like clearly you're doing that in your practice. I'm just wondering how you've done that, you know, <laughs> in other ways. Well, even um, one of the founders of Soto Zen in Japan, Keizan, uh wrote not to think that enlightenment doesn't exist because there is kind of a sickness in the Soto school to say that, you know, everything is enlightened, you know, and so you just have to sit like the Buddha, and, and you're manifesting your enlightenment. So that's a false understanding. And there's even an expression for it called buji zen, which is do-nothing zen. You know, it's kind of like, I'm already enlightened, so whatever I do is an expression of my enlightened life. And, and, and that's just a gross misunderstanding. But the other part of, of that is... a weakness of Rinzai Zen is thinking that enlightenment is something that you can obtain that's external to yourself and, you, and if you just work hard enough you're going to find it and then you have all kinds of ideas about what it is. Whereas so, but, so the Soto realization you know, that we are already enlightened you know, integrated with the actual experience of it. I think is a much more wholesome approach. And Yasutani Roshi and Maizumi Roshi both talked about two aspects of it. One is intrinsic. Intrinsically, we all are the Buddha. However, if you don't experience it, then it's not true for you. And that's the experiential. So the intrinsic and the experiential have to come together. Otherwise, it's just uh, speculation. You know, and it's, it's not something that has been embodied. And that's very important. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. 
This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice, or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.